I guess when you're a parent, sometimes things come full circle. In our house growing up, we had a rule that my parents laid down that we were not allowed to get up and come into their room until 6 a.m. on Christmas morning. Yeah, and uh, we forgot to lay down that rule to our children last night, and one showed up at about 4.30. <laughs> and then again, not too long after that. So uh, anyway, if you're a parent, you're probably a little tired this morning, but hopefully that will lead to naps this afternoon to some extent, a little bit of rest time. Well, it's good to be together this morning. Um, I am, I'm glad we're able to worship the Lord on Christmas Day. Uh, this doesn't happen all that often. Um, I think I read that 2033 will be the next time that uh, Christmas is on a Sunday. So enjoy it today. Um, it is a sweet time. I'm glad we're able to look at, uh, at God's Word together and think about and talk about the Incarnation Psalm. We started this in Hebrews 2 a couple of weeks ago, and this is maybe the most extensive and clearest passage in talking about the benefits and the gifts that come to us because of the incarnation. So Hebrews chapter 2 is where we're going to be uh, for the rest of our time together this morning. If you were here for the concert last week, or if you've just listened to Christmas music uh, at all throughout this, this time of year, um, you know that a lot of times in Christmas music, I think a couple of the songs last week, uh, a name is used to talk about the birth of Jesus. And that name is Emmanuel. That's a, a specific title that is given to Jesus or a name that's given to him when Joseph uh, heard from the angel. The angel told Joseph in Matthew chapter 1 that he was to call his son or he would be Emmanuel. And then he interprets that name for Joseph so he would understand the impact of that. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, right? So this is expected from the Old Testament. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And I didn't put the rest of the verse up there, and I'm not sure why. But he's, in verse 23, he says that he defines that name for us as God being with us. When you hear that God is with us, I want to make sure that we're specifically and intentionally thinking clearly about that. It's not just that God has come close to us. It's not just that he's in the same space as us, although that is true. It's not just that he is now near enough where we can talk with him and we can pray to him. He's with us in that sense. He's in the same room as us. This name comes specifically in an announcement of the birth of a baby. And there's a reason for that. God is with us, not just by being near us, but he's with us by becoming one of us. And the fact that God has come to earth and taken on human flesh, what we're celebrating this time of year, the mystery of the incarnation, something that Christians have sought to understand and have wrestled with for 2,000 years. How exactly does this work? How is this possible? The incarnation, the fact that God is with us. We've wrestled with this and tried to understand it, but we do know for sure that when this happens, significant gifts and benefits come to us. Everything changes in this moment when God takes on human flesh. 
And so two weeks ago, we started talking about this in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 to 18. These gifts are explained to us, and I want to continue in that this week and give you the last few of those gifts to us. We started in verse 14. Listen to the beginning of this. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Why did he do that? What are the results? What are the benefits that come to us? Because he took on humanity, flesh and blood. And we outlined a couple of these two weeks ago. There's ultimately five of them in this passage. And the first one of these is that our enemy is defeated. Look at the rest of verse 14. He partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. The devil who tempted Adam and Eve to sin in the garden and brought about this situation that we're in through his lies and through his deceit and who in, in many ways holds the power of death over us as human beings. His work is undone. His head is crushed. He is defeated by God becoming man, by taking on a human body, by taking on humanity in its fullness, as we'll talk about in a few minutes here, and ultimately by suffering death as a human so that the serpent could be defeated and death would be destroyed. Our enemy is defeated through God becoming man in a baby. The second one of these gifts is that as our enemy is defeated, the power of darkness is overcome. Now our deliverance is sure. Look at verse 15. And we deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Of course, sin is introduced into the world through the deceit of the serpent, and, and death is introduced through sin, and now there is enslavement to sin, and there is the fear of death which overwhelms us and takes control of us as human beings, and we can't do anything to help ourselves out of this circumstance and this situation. And so we need someone to get us out of this. Look at verse 16. For surely it is not angels that he helps. And remember that word helps is not talking about helping out in the kitchen. It's talking about what God did in delivering Israel out of Egypt through the Red Sea. It's talking about this very strong, dramatic victory that he wins and he helps them in, in that sense. And it's not to angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Those who receive the promises that come to Abraham and through Abraham are the ones that he wins this strong victory over the fear of death and over slavery to sin. And so because God has become man, we receive the benefit and the gift of deliverance from our enemy and from slavery. This is where we're going to pick up this week in verse 17. Our representative is provided as God becomes man. So uh, the author of Hebrews here in verses 14 through 16, he's talked about the incarnation already. In verse 14, the, because the children share in flesh and blood, he partook of the same things. So he's, he's set the table for the incarnation. And then he's talked about victory over death and victory over sin and how God helps the offspring of Abraham through the incarnation. And now in verse 17, he returns again to this fundamental truth of the incarnation it's like he wants us to remember that this is what we're focusing on and what we're paying attention to. Look at verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every 
respect. This is the main issue here. It's what we're celebrating this time of year. It's the incarnation, God becoming man. And in order for this help that we talked about in verse 16 to come to us, Jesus had to become like us, and notice the language here, in every respect. This is really important. It's vital that you understand what he's getting at here as as he explains the incarnation this way. This points to Jesus's full humanity. So make sure you understand this. And when you think about God becoming man, you don't think of this wrongly. Okay, he wasn't part God and part man. This wasn't like a fusion of two different creatures becoming something new. He wasn't 50% God and 50% man. He wasn't 99% God and 1% man or the opposite. He was a full human being. 100% God and 100% man. He didn't just have a human body. Don't think about this as if God just came and took up residence and had a human outer flesh and a human body. All that is essential to being human God took on. Jesus, the second person of the Godhead, took that on and became that in the incarnation. This is something that the early church wrestled with in significant ways. And it is crazy to think about, right? This is part of the glory and the mystery of this. The work that God did in order to provide salvation for us. How exactly does this happen? And the the folks in the early church who were very bright and very smart tried to work this out. And here's the phrase that they came to use to to help us to understand why this is so significant. If this wasn't true, what I'm about to tell you, then Jesus couldn't provide full salvation for us. Here's the phrase they used. He could not redeem what he did not assume. Okay, he could not redeem what he did not assume. In other words, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, assumed or took on everything that is essential to being a human being. He took on a human mind, not just a body. He took on a human will. He took on human emotions. Yes, the light just went out. I'm not exactly sure why, but there you go. It's a little ambiance for us this morning. All right, perfectly timed. All right, don't worry about it, Mark. It's no big deal. So he took on a human mind, a human will, and human emotions, okay? And here's why this is so significant for us. When you think about sin and the reality of sin and what happened to Adam and Eve in the garden, when they sinned, we use in Christian talk, we use this phrase total depravity to talk about what happened to them. That doesn't mean they were as bad as they could possibly be. What that means is that every part of their humanity became corrupted and infected with sin. So their bodies were cursed. They begin to break down. They suffer death. Their minds did not work as well. They became corrupted by sin. They do not see things accurately. Their will, they start to want what they should not want. Even their emotions don't function properly. And this is true for all of us. We are depraved or corrupted or sinful in every part of our humanity. It impacts all of us in every way. And it's important that you understand that because this is why Jesus had to take on full humanity and assume every part of what it means to be a human being. 
mind, will, emotions, body, all of it. He took on all of it so that he could redeem every single part of it. So that every part of you could be made right. Not just your body, not just your mind, not just your will, not just your emotions. All of it come under the redemption that he provides. It's all-encompassing. This is a glorious hope for you and for me, right? Because what does this mean? This means that if your body is breaking down, that because Jesus became a full human being, that your body will be redeemed. Does your brain work slower than it used to? Is that frustrating sometimes? Your mind is going to be renewed and redeemed and made right one day because God became a human being. Are your emotions difficult to handle? And sometimes they don't match up to reality. And you suffer all forms of different difficult emotions. God became man and took on our emotional life so that he could redeem that aspect of our humanity. Do you want the wrong things? Do you desire the wrong things? Your will, your want-tos are going to be made right. And of course, we experience that to some extent now in the process of sanctification, but ultimately everything's going to be set right one day because God became man. He took on every aspect of our humanity in order to redeem it. And he did that by becoming our representative. And he was our representative in a very precise and particular way. Man, I really messed this slide thing up this morning. Let me give you, or, sorry, I'm off a little bit. Let me give you the next part of this in verse 17, okay? He tells us, I got a little ahead of myself there. He tells us exactly how he becomes our representative. Look at the rest of verse 17. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So this is exactly how he becomes our representative. He is our high priest. And what was a high priest? A high priest was the chief priest in Israel. He was the one who had a very specific role, right? Here's the role, Hebrews 5.1. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act, here's his job, on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. So what does a high priest do? He's the representative of men before God. Look in this verse at the end of it. I read it just a second ago, but look what he says here. He takes specific actions to represent men before God. He offers gifts and sacrifices for sin. Why does he have to do this? Well, sin is the problem that creates the distance and the enmity between God and human beings. And so high priests are chosen from among men to represent them to offer gifts and sacrifices that will cover or atone for their sins. And these sacrifices and the, the atonement that is made is meant to close the distance between God and between mankind to bring the two together. But when you talk about a high priest in Israel here, like you see in Hebrews 5.1, you're talking about a human being who could not fully and finally cover up or atone for or close the distance that is caused by the sins that humans commit. Why could this 
high priest not fully take care of human sins because they were sinners themselves. They had their own issues and sins to take care of. Hebrews 7.23 puts it like this. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death because of their sins from continuing in office. And the the sacrifices that they were offering, the gifts that they were offering, were not sufficient sacrifices to cover sins forever. Hebrews 10 talks about this. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And so the high priest in the Old Testament and the other priests are offering sacrifices of animals to cover the sins, and they do this temporarily in an outward sort of way, that allows the people to somewhat participate in a close relationship with God, but not to fully enter into his presence. And so this was an insufficient priesthood and insufficient sacrifices. So what did we actually need? What does every human being need? We need a fully human high priest who can serve as our representative So we need a representative, but we also need that high priest to offer a sacrifice for sin that would fully and finally cover that sin, remove that sin, and that would once and for all close the distance that sin created between God and between man. Hebrews chapter 9. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, Then, through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh... There's an outward cleansing there. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? There's an internal and a final and a full cleansing and removal of sin that happens because Jesus is that high priest, that fully human high priest, who also offers a sacrifice that fully and finally cleanses from sin. He does this by being filled with two qualities. Look back in verse 17. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. I love those two qualities. The first one of those, merciful. Merciful high priest. It's interesting because in the Old Testament, you hear about the high priests, you hear about other priests, but they're never mentioned as having this quality of being merciful. But throughout the Old Testament, who is called merciful? God is called merciful. And so here, Jesus, the fully human high priest, is also called merciful. 
bringing his divinity and his humanity together. He has pity on us in our sinful condition. He comes as one of us and understands us in that way. And at the same time as our representative, not only is he merciful to us and pities us, but he is faithful to God. He fulfills the mission and the responsibilities that God has given to him. He never gives in to sin, and he does the work that God has sent him to do for us. There are massive ramifications of this high priesthood of Jesus and this sacrifice that he offers for us. These are in Hebrews 10. It's on the screen here. And I want you to notice as I read this, the two senses and the three results of that led us. All right, that's how this passage is structured. Here's the application that the author is giving to us in light of the high priesthood of Jesus and the sacrifice of himself that he offers. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, his humanity that he took on, and since we have a great priest over the house of God. Now, here's the payoff for you and for me. Here's the results of that. Let us draw near, right? That distance is gone. It's objectively gone. The distance between God and human beings because of sin has been obliterated because God became man. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Second, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. This is the payoff for us. You can see in these verses that we have confidence now in our relationship with God. We have access to God because of our great high priest, Jesus. You can see in verse 19 here at the beginning of this, we enter because of the blood of Jesus, because of the sacrifice that he has made. His blood is what restores us in our relationship with God. And this is the next gift here. Our relationship is restored. So the blood of Jesus makes access to God possible as he serves as our high priest and offers this sacrifice. But how exactly does this work? What is it about the blood of Jesus that restores our relationship with God? Look at the rest of verse 17 in Hebrews chapter 2. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. And here's what he was accomplishing as he offered himself and his blood as our representative human being to make propitiation for the sins of the people. You can see at the end of this verse there, the sins of the people, that's the problem, right? That's what has created the distance between God and human beings. But that distance there is not just a relational coldness, okay? I want to make sure we understand this. What does the sin cause? It's not just that we're not on speaking terms with God. It's not just that we're a little frustrated with each other. Let's back up and get the full scope of the problem here 
And we need the full scope of the problem so that we can understand Christ's work of propitiation. That's a a good Bible word that we don't use a whole lot, but we need to understand exactly what's happening in that. God created human beings in his image. He gave us every gift imaginable. And as you well know, in Genesis 3, human beings in our representative head, Adam and Eve, we rejected God and chose our own path. So what does that result in? Now we're totally depraved. We're corrupt in every part of who we are. And now we worship ourselves, essentially. We've turned in on ourselves and think we're the greatest thing in the universe worthy of worship. We worship the creation. We value all of that more than God. And all of that is an act of cosmic unrighteousness. It flips the whole thing on its head. Turns everything upside down. Inverts it. Makes things not as they should be. God is glorious. He's worthy of our worship and our adoration. Everything should be pointed to him in praise. And what we have done is we in our humanity have chosen gravel over diamonds. And because God is love, because this is who he is, right? This act of cosmic unrighteousness happens. And now, because he's love, It's rooted in his love. He's not going to tolerate that which is harmful to his creatures. He loves us too much to do that and to sort of let it slide. And because he's ultimately holy and righteous and worthy of worship, he's not going to tolerate anything else in the universe receiving the worship that he rightly and justly deserves. He knows he is the ultimate all-satisfying good. And so for his creatures who've been designed to be satisfied in him to choose anything else is to make a harmful mistake. It's to go where they shouldn't go. So, get this, God's love, it's a little bit mind-boggling, his love is expressed in his enmity and wrath toward human beings. If he didn't love his own glory and if he didn't love his creatures, there would be no reaction of wrath against the sin of humanity. We've chosen our own way and rejected his love, and so he justly and rightly reacts in wrath. And that wrath is set on sinful human beings who have rejected him. And that puts us at odds with the creator of the universe. And that puts every human being born into this world under God's wrath and under the just sentence of his wrath. And so, that's the picture, and that's why we need propitiation. That's why we need what Jesus could bring as our fully human representative and as the one who can offer the sacrifice of his blood for sins. It's because of God's wrath. It's because of the relational hostility between God and man that we need propitiation. Now, make sure you understand this word. It points in two directions at the same time, and we need both of these. On the one hand, propitiation points to the removal of our sin. Wiping away the sin that is there and the just punishment for that sin. The culpability, the guilt for that sin is taken away in propitiation. And 
At the same time, our sins are taken away. God's just wrath is satisfied and removed from us. The reason for the wrath is removed. And at the same time, the wrath is satisfied in the death of Christ. It's fulfilled completely and taken care of because there has been a proper punishment for sin. Romans 3 puts it like this. Oh, man, struggling. Romans chapter 3. It's Christmas morning. I'm going to read this to you because it's that good. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. You know this verse well. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And listen to this. Whom God put forward as a what? Propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just, right? God might be just, not approving of sin, not looking over sin and acting like everything's okay, but he might be just and the justifier declaring righteous those who have faith in Jesus. So we get our sins removed. We get declared righteous. The relational hostility is done because because God's wrath is satisfied. And now we are able to boldly access the throne of grace. And all of this happens because Jesus became a human being. Because he was fully human. He could suffer as our substitute. He could fully absorb the wrath of God over sin, which was directed at human beings. And now our sins are wiped away. And now we enter into fellowship with God because of this. And this fellowship brings about unbelievable results in our daily lives. And this is the last gift here. Our assistance is present. It's there, regularly present. Look at verse 18 with me. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now, I want to make sure, so think with me real quickly here as we get to the end of this. I want to make sure that you understand what's going on because the payoff for your life this week is tremendous. The benefit of how this helps you. But it's easy to misunderstand what's happening here. It's easy to read this verse and think that what it's saying is that Jesus understands our temptations because he experienced temptation, and so he can sympathize with us. Now, that is true, that point I just said. Jesus understands our temptations and sympathizes with us because he experienced them. That's true, and that's covered later in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16 make that point. But that is not the point that is being made here. This verse uses the word suffered. And it's talking about the suffering that Christ experienced on the cross in his death. Look again at verse 18. For because he himself has suffered when he was tempted. The suffering on the cross is the main point here. And he he was tempted through his suffering. He was tempted to turn away from God. 
but it makes all the difference in how you understand this and what the main point of this is, the emphasis, and it makes all the difference that we focus on his work on the cross here because his work on the cross and not just that he sympathizes with us in temptation, but his work on the cross is what provides the help for us when we're tempted. Look at the rest of the verse. Because he suffered on the cross when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Because he died for us on the cross and was tempted through that, he's able to help us when we are tempted. So how exactly does he help you this week when you are tempted in his death on the cross? Look at this quote. For those who are tempted and facing various trials, here's where the help comes from. The confidence of sins forgiven and God's anger turned aside by their merciful and faithful high priest would have been a profound help. It's in the objective work of Christ on the cross that our assistance in temptation comes. Why? Because Christ's death on the cross as a full human being tells you that you have been justified, that you have been declared righteous, that you are on sure footing in your relationship with God now. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the reality. This is truth for you if you are in Christ right now. And so when you are faced with a temptation, go back to this reality. And what happens? It undermines the power of temptation in your life. Let me show you how this works. As long as I am stricken with the guilt of my sins, I will be captive to them and will often find myself recommitting the very sins about which I feel most guilty. It's an interesting dynamic in our lives, isn't it? We feel guilty about it and we think, oh, if I'll just cultivate this feeling of guilt and really tear myself up over it, then I won't want to do it again. And it actually works the opposite. The gospel, however, the gift of grace that we've been given in God becoming man and the justification that we've received and the peace with God that we have, the removal of our sins, the gospel, however, slays sin at this root point and thereby nullify sin's power over me. The forgiveness of God made known to me through the gospel liberates me from sin's power because it liberates me first from its guilt. And preaching such forgiveness to myself is a practical way of putting the gospel into operation as a nullifier of sin's power in my life. Sin has no power over you You are not enslaved to it anymore. And Christ's suffering for you makes that abundantly clear. And that's what he's getting at. That's the gift and the benefit here in verse 18 for you. Jesus serves as your representative. He accomplished what you could never accomplish through feeling guilty over sin. Now, there there certainly is a sense in which when you sin, there's guilt that is there because you have violated God's righteous standard. But what should happen? That guilt should immediately turn to the cross and recognize the forgiveness and the grace that we have received in our representative, how we stand justified in Christ and God's wrath has been satisfied. 
He's wiped away our sins, and now we are in a relationship with God that cannot be broken because of Christ. And that recognition is what provides the motivation and the power to say no to the temptation that comes in your daily life. Now you know that even when you sin, you can approach God with confidence, right? You don't have to work up a certain level of guilt in order for God to accept you because Jesus has already accepted you and made you acceptable to God through his work. And so now you come to God with confidence. You see the truth about sin. You recognize it as a lie. Jesus provides help in our temptation when we know the gospel, we know the benefits we have, and when we go back to the gospel and consistently go back to the truths that we've talked about this morning and that undermines sin's power over us in our daily lives. So, all of these are gifts of grace. I'm going to go back to them and put them up there again. Gifts of grace that we've received because of what we're celebrating today. Our enemies defeated, our deliverance is sure, our representative is provided. Through his representation, our relationship is restored. And you and I have assistance this week in our temptation because of what he has done in becoming man and suffering for our sins. So I would just ask you, like I ask myself, remember these gifts of grace that we have today. These truths and objective realities that are there for you. And they're there for us because of Emmanuel, because God is with us, not just in our space, but because he became one of us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we're so grateful for what you've done for us. And we're grateful for this day that is set aside every year, this season when we can remember these realities, Lord. We are forgetful people, certainly, we tend to just float along and focus on what's right in front of us at times. And we're so grateful for this time of year, the songs that we sing, the opportunity to think again about the incarnation and why this is so vital and important for us. These are, I think, rich theological truths and they make a massive difference in our lives. They're not disconnected and abstract they're so important for us to understand. And so we thank you for the chance to meditate on them on Christmas morning. I pray that you would encourage us with these things today and for the rest of the week as we continue to just marvel at what you have accomplished for us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.